Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. If your Bibles are with you or you've got the Bible app, open up to today's message. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 18 of chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4. And you're going to look at this and go, yes, we're going to get through this fast. No, we're not, because we are going to spend about four weeks on this one passage, uh, because there is so much here. But it's all one big chunk that have, um, it's kind of gotten us here after the, the letter uh, that Paul writes to the church here. It starts with some great theology, some, some nature of salvation, who Jesus is, our eternal king. I mean, if, if you have to be encouraged, if, you, if you're like maybe a little bleak about the way things are going in the world or in your life, turn back to Colossians chapter 1 and, and just read verses 15 through 20 and, and see that you have a king, a savior who is the creator of all. The, he's a, the, the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. He made it all for us. And, and not only that, he holds it all together. I mean, this is the king we serve. This is the Jesus that we love and we sing about. And so encourage you, you know, maybe you're a little, little bleak well go back to chapter one and read and and this this amazing jesus he he's the creator he's the sustainer he's our savior he is the wisdom of god he is the truth that helps us understand life jesus he's the one who inspires us and equips us to suffer for his sake he is all that we need and we want to live rightly focused lives and that kind of brought us last week to looking at the puts. Uh, we, we looked at two weeks, the, the put-offs or the put-to-deaths, the put-aways. Things like sexual morality and impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. These are all things that we're supposed to put to death, put off in our life. And we're supposed to put on new things to, to seek to change in character, to look more like Jesus. And that means putting on intentionally choosing to to put on compassion and kindness and humility gentleness patience bearing with one another forgiving one another loving one another that we might experience the peace of god and be thankful as the word of christ dwells in us and so paul has been taking the the church and and taking us on this journey and kind of going from from okay here's what it is to know god and here's what it is to be saved and he's just building in ever expanding circles of influence and 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 ways that our lives should change as we know jesus as lord and savior and the king who rules over us the son of god and and we as christians he's been giving us not suggestions for better living, but instead commands for what it is to be a subject in the kingdom of the Son. And I think that in Christianity, we have managed to confuse ourselves over time and think that what God's word teaches us are helpful tips if you would like life to be better. But really what Paul is telling us, what scripture is telling us, that if you are a Christian, this is what you should be pursuing in your life. This is what your life should look like. Not that you have to do these things to be saved, but if you are saved, 
you should genuinely be wanting to do these things as a subject of the kingdom and put on this new character and become more like Christ. He ends that this encouragement uh, with, with Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That as we expand from knowing God and, and being saved by Christ and, and centering our lives on him, and then he begins to influence and, and reach and, and change our lives as we work together as the church. And now we're going to go an even bigger circle. And Paul says, everything you do, the Bible says, everything you do, do it as if it were for Jesus and Jesus alone. Can you stand before your King Jesus with a, a, a kind of a, a look back over your last week and say, I, I lived this for you. I wasn't perfect. I, I, I fell short in some places. I am not uh, all, quite where I need to be, but I did this for you. Can you honestly say that? Because that's what Paul says we're supposed to be as Christians. Not that everything has to be about devotions and you know walking around all day singing, Oh, how great thou art, how great thou art. You know, and, 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 and don't have to be like that, but how we should be is looking more and more like Jesus in every aspect of life. It begins here in the church, and then Paul is going to take us into a new area as well because he wants us to understand that right doctrine should always lead to right living. When you know the truth, it should change who you are. And so when you know Jesus as your Christ, you know him as your king. It, it's not some option to look more like him. It is a command to put to death how you used to be and to put on character traits that look like Jesus. And he starts in talking about the home, or excuse me, in the church, and, and talks about the unity of love and talking about peace and singing songs together and teaching God's word to one another. And then this week, we're going to talk about the home and actually the next few weeks. And then ultimately, he's going to move out into how your Christian life and your faith in Jesus, the Christ, should affect your in, or your, the way that you interact with the culture, the whole culture around you. So let's look today. We're going to begin the process, actually, of looking at Christ at home, Christ in our home. So if, once again, your Bibles, if they're open, verses, uh, or chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And, and this is going to be just an overview today about this passage and why we should take it as more than just good advice, but instead commands from our king. So chapter 3, verse 18 begins this way. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands. Love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So this, this, this block of text, this passage, 
We call it the household code. And, and a household code was the means by which a home should be structured in order for that home to function properly according to the standards of the age, the standards of the day. It was very common in Judaism and Greco-Roman culture. In fact, we see books written about household code. Some of you may be familiar with the uh, philosopher Aristotle. Anybody familiar with Aristotle? Some of you, you've heard of the name. Uh, he's not one of the turtles. Uh, that's like Michelangelo and Donatello and Raphael. But, but he, is, he is critical as a philosopher. He's critical in the, in the life of the Greek culture and the Roman culture, and some of his philosophy actually helps to undergird Christianity and our understanding of the nature of God and existence. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm still fighting allergies for some reason, and then I have this weird thing when I'm talking, I, I like trail off and then, and it's, I gotta stop that. Anyway, the investigation of everything, says Aristotle, should begin with its smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. And so Aristotle, as a philosopher in his book Politics, his writing Politics, he began to expand exactly how a properly run Greek home should look according to his philosophies. And, and this was not uncommon for teachers like Aristotle, for Jewish rabbis to, to give codes for what a home should look like. For, for Roman culture, it wasn't uncommon to establish exactly how husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters should interact with one another. And, and so we, we, we see that this is actually not uncommon. In fact, it is really, really important according to first century thought here. Peter H. Davidson, the Cornerstone Bible Commentary on Colossians, says the importance of these household relationships was clear to the ancients. The household or extended family was the foundation for the city or state. And if the household fell apart, the city would not be far behind. And, and we can agree with that. We can look at our culture and we can see that as the family becomes more and more nebulous, as it is less and less defined and more and more defined by the whims of the day and the culture of the moment, we can watch as the family corrodes, the whole culture disintegrates. As the family becomes something that is undefined and, and defined by desire and, and modern mindsets, we, we watch the whole culture collapse, which is, is why it's so important to understand that when we are fighting philosophies and, and untruths of this world, our enemies are going and trying to teach first our children and they're trying to, to break up our families through teaching our children how to rebel, how to treat dad like he's an idiot. Seen any of that on TV lately? Right? How to, to make them seem like things that are uncommon and ungodly are actually the way things should be. Go ahead and open your eyes and watch children's television. If you can get past the cutesy music and the la-di-da, you will actually find that they are trying to shape our children to reject traditional family structures and household codes in order to degrade what we are and who we are so that our society collapses and they can remake it in their own image and according to their own desires. 
You see, the, the household, the, the home, it is the foundation for, for everything else. It is the place where children are supposed to be trained up. Husbands and wives are supposed to be on the same team. Slaves and masters work together to the benefit of both. And some of you might recoil a little bit at that thought of slaves. And we'll get to more detail on that and stuff. But, but understand, it was part of the culture in this day. It was normal for folks to have slaves. And when Paul writes this, he is actually revolutionary in how he gives those in subordinate positions. He gives them equal standing with those who are in the leadership positions. And gives leaders strict, strict rules by which to lead. Because here in the culture of the day, we we have to understand something. When Paul writes this household code in Colossians chapter 3... And in Ephesians chapter 5, some of us are probably more familiar with that, Ephesians 5.22, which is read in a lot, of, a lot of marriages and stuff, a lot of weddings. When Paul writes these household codes, when the Holy Spirit inspires him to speak, he's speaking into a culture where husbands or parents or masters had total control of the lives and those in their household. And I don't mean like some sort of near total control or almost, but absolute and total control in the lives of those in their household. The the first thing to look at is that both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties to the wife. Here in the uh, the, uh, preaching the word commentary on Colossians by Kent Hughes, he says this, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. So Paul is speaking into a culture where the household code gives The husband, the father, the master, absolute authority over everyone's life in his household. And some of us are like, that sounds really nice. Let's go back to those days. And and I got to tell you, it wasn't so nice because it wasn't God's desires and it wasn't his plan and it wasn't his design. But it's also true that parents, parents, and some of you parents are going to like this. They held absolute authority over their adult children in every area, including their marriage, which was usually arranged their vocation that they would pick for them, and even whether or not they lived or died. In, in the Greco-Roman culture, in this first century, the father and the mother together held absolute authority over their children to the point that they could have them put to death, even at a whim. Now, how long did that last? A lot of you are probably thinking, well, probably, you know, once they turned 18, they were outs. It's like, no. Actually, in this culture, 
the father especially remained the authority over his grown sons until one of two things happened. In Greek culture, it was he died. In Roman culture, the son turned 60. (laughs) So you... In fact, most of us under 60 here today, if we were to, to live under this, we would, we would say we're still under the authority of our fathers who could choose our vocation, in fact, shift our vocation at any time because it was a better deal for him or, you know, he really wanted somebody who did that, who could even have us killed if we were displeasing to them because we really probably would have been living under their roof still and in their places. And, and then masters. Masters held complete and total authority over the lives of slaves. Complete and total. We, we talk about that sometimes we, people like to try and make a distinction between slavery in the Bible and slavery in the United States. And the truth is there really wasn't much difference. Other than what the Bible says about slavery is that slaves and masters were supposed to be working together as believers instead of against each other and in, 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 well, combat against one another in life. But in this century, in this era, as Paul is writing this, they've got complete authority over the lives of their slaves. And the only thing that they had to do was make sure that they got fed and clothed. That was their only legal responsibility. And yet they could have them killed if that was their desire. And so I say all this to say, we we read this and and maybe go, ah, you know, Paul's just reiterating the culture of the day. The truth is, is everything that Paul wrote here is counter-cultural. It's outside of culture. It actually is a, a complete revolution. And so when we read this... In our modern era, what we want to do is, is we look back at what Paul wrote and we say, well, that's just old, and that's not modernity, and that's not the culture as it is today. And, and I want to challenge you with, with the, the mindsets of our modern culture, because in today's society, husbands and wives are absolutely interchangeable. And I don't mean that flippantly. Uh, the, um, uh, can't remember the magazine all of a sudden? And those of you who are in my Sunday school class, you'll, you'll realize this is just not a word or remembering day for me. But, but the, uh, I think it's Style Magazine. It just released a, uh, a cover uh, this last week of a, a pregnant man. You know, another one, right? <laughs> John got a kick out of that. Um, and I don't know if it was my pose or what I said, right? But a pregnant man, a beard, uh, you know, and, and then pregnant. And it's like that, okay. Look, we, we understand our culture, but, but in today's day and age, husbands and wives, men and women, we are interchangeable. We have taken equality to a ludicrous extreme to the point where we would say there's no difference. And, and in fact, if you just want to swap bits, you can be the other. And, and we can know that, that where we're at is, is not a place of, of free thinking, but a, a place of absolute idiocy. And a rejection of things that would have been common sense in the past. Second thing that's true in our culture, and we can deny it, and we can can like try and slide off, but this is a truth even in too many Christian homes, and sometimes even in my own home some days, children rule. Children rule. And and what what does that mean? Well, it means I'm going to take away your phone. Oh, no. I'm going to call the police and I'm going to report you and I'm going to do this and I'm going to hate you forever. And we're just like, here, not only will I not take away your phone, let me give you a subscription to something. 
you know, let, let me go ahead and give you a new gaming system and a bigger TV. Just shh, it's okay. It's okay. Be happy. I want you self-actualized and to really be your own thing. And children rule the home. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I'm making light of it to a certain extent, but I, I think if we honestly look, even those of us who have older teenagers, that we struggle with being the authority. We struggle with, with, with feeling like we're being, well, I'm, I'm, I'm unfair, I'm unjust, I'm unkind. Children rule the home. We, we allow them to dictate to us life. And we're going to shift this, this slave-master relationship over as we expound on this teaching in the next few weeks to employer and employee. Now, we are not slaves to our employer, but this is a similar kind of relationship. It is one that is supposed to be mutually beneficial and caring for one another. But instead, in our day and age, employers and employees will willingly take advantage of one another and abuse their power or their autonomy in order to try and get what they want. There is no self-sacrifice. There is no loyalty in, in, in the, the most current generation that is entering the workforce, they last in a job about six months. Do you know why they only last about six months in a job? Because they get so fed up with their employer, they start looking elsewhere, and they actually find a better job somewhere else. Better pay, better treatment. Now, isn't that sad that we've gotten to a point both where, as employees, we don't care and as employers, we don't care for those that are under us. Isn't it just clear to see that our culture has gone off the rails to the other side? And yet we live in a culture that will take what Paul has said here, which are hard words, aren't they? When we read them, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, deal justly and fairly with your slaves. We read these words, we kind of recoil. It's like, yeah, but what about freedom? And what about autonomy? And what about doing our own thing and figuring out our own way? And so we get to this discussion of, well, when we're reading God's word, was, was, this, was the Apostle Paul, when, was the Holy Spirit just kind of reinforcing the culture of the day? And so we can take these words and we can shuffle them around and we can reinterpret them in light of our culture and we can soften them and we can, we can make them apply differently and we can, in fact, just reject them because this is an old thing and we don't have to do this anymore. Or when the Apostle Paul wrote this, was he reflecting God's design for our homes? Was he trying to, to not, not to, to, to reinforce his culture, to, to reinforce the patriarchy of the day, but instead to say, this is a way that God has designed us, and neither the way that we live today nor the way that anyone else might choose to live in the future is right, but this is how God would have us to live as his people. This is not a cultural statement. This is a statement from design. Or, or is it? Because God, has God been that deliberate about the home? Or is it just like something that kind of popped up and now he's trying to figure out what to do with it? And, and I want to propose to you that we can go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. 
Is male and female an accident? No, it's deliberate by God. And if God did something deliberately, do you think that there is a differentiation and a design in it? Absolutely. And so male and female are not interchangeable. They're not swappable in God's design. If we, if we continue to look a little bit later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, this is the detailed account of the creation of man and woman. And after having been uh, shaped out of the dust and have life breathed into him, man was looking for a companion, looked amongst all the animals, and not one was found suitable to be his companion, to look him in the face and to be with him, to be his equal but opposite. And, and so God creates a woman from his side. And the man said, this one at last can you imagine walking through the whole zoo, not finding a friend, and then finally, on your way out, there she is! Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She looks like me. She's got two legs, two arms, not four legs and a tail. I mean, this is great, God. This is perfect. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And that's literally what woman means. Man is ish. Woman is isha. And it is taken from man. And, and so there is a similarity and yet a great difference in us. And it's not accident. God didn't look down. In fact, at the end of, of, of Genesis chapter 1, what does it say God said about all of his creation, including man and woman? Not just good. He didn't say good, but he said very good at the end of creation. Every day he said, it's good. At the end of creation, when man and woman are done and creation is finished before he rests, God says, this is very good. Our differences are not an accident. In fact, we can say it is designed this way. In creation, innate to creation, there is a design for the household. There is a design for how we relate together as husbands and wives, men and women, in both the church and the home. And it is not just because guys are bigger or stronger and we make our way but instead because this is part of God's design, the way he made us for. How do we know that, that, that man is meant to be different than woman and that his leadership is established from all time? Romans 5.19, and this might seem like a weird one to point out, but it's critical for you to understand. The Apostle Paul is writing and talking about sin and where sin comes from and where salvation will ultimately come from. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Scripture clearly teaches us that when Adam fell, all of us who are his descendants fell with him. He is, Adam is our initial authority, our federal head, if you're a doctrine nut, you're going to look that up. He is the one who establishes what it is to be a man or a woman. And when Adam chose to sin, we all fell and fell prey to the death of sin with him. And you might go, well, I wasn't there. You were because he represents you. He is your head, your source. 
And so if Adam is your source in the physical, it's saying he brought you death, but there is a different Adam, a new man, that when you submit yourself to him, he will bring you life. One man to whom you may submit to be your new head or source. Who's that man? Jesus. And when you make that choice to make Jesus your source instead of Adam, what used to be death is now life because of that one man who represents you, who is your source, who is your head. Paul actually, in two different places in Scripture, justifies, and not justifies, explains, that's the word I want, explains male leadership in the church and home, and he roots it not in the culture, but in creation. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. This whole discussion is actually about praying with your head covered or uncovered. Men, according to scripture, we're never supposed to pray with our head covered. So that means at dinner table, get that hat off, boy, and bless the food with your head uncovered. Ladies, technically, according to scripture, you're supposed to be praying with your heads covered. Now, some still practice doilies and head coverings. Others say it's your hair. Either way, it's about being in right relationship with the spiritual authorities in life. And here's where this structure comes from, creation. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is in the creation account. Paul is not being selfish and saying, so all the ladies need to submit to me, Paul the player. He's not being flippant. He's saying, look, when we look back in God's word, God created man and woman, yes. But specifically, when we look in Genesis 2, he made man, and from man came woman. And woman was created for the sake of man, to be his companion. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, in talking about Men being the leaders in the church. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now what is significant to understand is, yes, Eve was deceived and fell first, but it's not until Adam falls that we see the effects of sin over all of creation. And so Adam is responsible not Eve, but Eve was the first to fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. When we see this, when we see that God has established an order, when we see that God roots it in creation, not in culture, what we say, well, why does he do this? Why is he like this? Why does he give us rules that, that feel uncomfortable, that make us feel like maybe, maybe there's too much responsibility on our shoulders or not enough? Here's why. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Everything is to be done decently and in order. Now, I want to be careful to let you know, these, this, this passage is specifically about how a church service should unfold and who gets to speak and when and, and in what fashion. But the, the idea here is relevant. God created the family. In fact, the household is the, the first thing that was established. 
Long before there was a church, there was a family. And God has given us a clear understanding of what the design in a household should look like, just like he gives us a clear understanding of what the design of the church house should look like as we work together. And why is that? Because he's mean? Because he's capricious? Because he likes guys more than girls? No, because he has established an order and he is a God of order and a God of peace. And if we really believe what God's word says, then we will look at the standards he gives us and the design he has established for us and say, this is to his glory and for our betterment. And even if we struggle with it, we will follow God's design. So the household codes of scripture, they reflect God's design. They're they're not a reflection of the culture of the day. And if that's true, that means that no matter how culture changes around us when it comes to its expectations for our homes, we should not give up God's good design for the thoughts of the day. We should not give up the standards that God has given to us, the structure that God has given to us for our own desires. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. If, I encourage you, if you want to read a, a really good little short essay on family life, it's called The Sermon and the Lunch. And C.S. Lewis talks about how he was in church and heard a, a preacher just railing on how beautiful, how beautiful the family is and how, how it, amazing it is to be living together in harmony. And then he had lunch with that same pastor's family just previously. And the adult children came to lunch with the mother and the father, and the father talked over the mother, and the mother talked over the father, and the children sat and fumed, and then they got into a big political argument by the time it was done. And C.S. Lewis looks at that man's family and goes, that is neither a place of peace nor order, even after that preacher had been preaching about how beautiful it was. And and C.S. Lewis begins to address the hypocrisy by saying, first of all, that should be how the family is. But the truth is, is many families are not. But we should not abandon God's order, but instead try and reclaim it for our families. And here's what he says. Must we not teach that if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules? In other words, the truth is, Your family can be a blessing. Your extended family. When you get together all together with the cousins and the aunts and the uncles, that can be a blessing to you and to one another. But it cannot exist in a place where there are no standards. It will become chaotic and grace stealing instead of grace giving. There cannot be a common life without a regula. Regula. C.S. Lewis actually wrote for the common man, except now we've gotten a little stupider than they were in the 40s and 50s. And so when we read the word regular, we go, huh? A rule. Standard. And it's not that you all are stupid. It's that our culture has changed linguistics, right? And we, we get a little more, well, simple in the way we communicate. Smiley face. Um, <laughs> thumbs up, right? And so, and he says this. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. And if you've you've got a home 
where there are no standards, but there's a person with a strong personality, who becomes the de facto ruler of your home? That personality. The most selfish and the most vocal person who is willing to say, everything's mine and has to be done my way, becomes the king of your home. Jesus even is pushed to the side because his standards and his design are ignored for the sake of the loudest voice and the most selfish personality. And that can be a father who wants everything his way and is a tyrant. That can be a mother who tears everyone apart and tries to shape the home to her way. That can be any of the children Because they're the loudest, because they're the grumpiest, because they are the most out of control, all of a sudden they are in control. And C.S. Lewis says, if your home is to be a place of grace, a real place of blessing like God wants for it to be, you've got to follow some standards. And the truth is there will always be somebody in charge of your home. The question is, who's it going to be? Will it be the person's who have been designed by God to be in charge, or will it be the loudest voice living according to their own selfish desires? Why, why is this so important? Why is the family so important? Why is the household so important? We go all the way back to Genesis 2. When, when Adam says, this is woman, yeah, she's for me. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. This is the first time we see family talked about in scripture. Family was instituted before anything else. Before there was a chosen people, there was family. Before there was a temple, there was family. Before there was a church, there was family. And so our households matter. So as those, or excuse me, as the first institution ordained by God, a rightly ordained household glorifies his design and rule in our lives. And so when we get to Colossians 3 and we look at whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our homes, scripture says, are a critical part of everything we do being done in the name of the Lord Jesus. A rightly structured home, a rightly uh, living home that follows the design of God is critical to giving God the glory and experiencing the blessings of God. But it's also something that we have to be very careful not to abuse the design that God has given to us. And this is the problem that most of us have today is we look at the abuses of our past and we go, I can't do that. I don't want life like that. It can't be like that. And instead, we, 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 we reject all the good and perfect things of God because of the way that we've been hurt. And that's a fair way to respond on one hand, but it's also a foolish way to respond. Now, now we see, though, that, that here's what God says in, in the very same argument about woman coming from man and, and man being created first, and, and that's why there are certain standards within the church. He says this, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. We are completely dependent upon one another. Even though that God has a design, and he's given us standards and roles in which to, to walk and live as men and women, especially in the household, that we are not independent of one another. We are completely interdependent 
And so all of us must live this design well for the household to be blessed. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. Do you need me to explain that to you? I hope not. Genesis chapter 2, it's clear, right? Woman came from man. God took from the side of man woman so that man would have someone to look him in the face and be like him and yet opposite and be his companion. And then God returns the favor and every man that has ever been since Adam, including our Savior, has come through a woman. And so we are interdependent and all things come from God. And so the goal of this household code is to get us to a place where everyone in the home is looking toward Jesus Christ and living to his glory. And then the structure that he has given to us will be a blessing and will be to his glory. Now, those of you who are maybe wondering, well, are women second-class citizens in Scripture? I'm going to tell you, I don't see that. I don't see that. Sisters, I know this, that when we talk about submission in marriage, that this is probably one of the hardest discussions and, and one of the worst abuses in the church has been to make women second-class citizens. I want you to, to see some of the women in Scripture that God has used not for small things, not just for like, and she made a great meal. But they, they were life-changing, scripture-proclaiming, and, and, and like will-of-God-moving women. Uh, Shifra and, and Pua. <laughs> this would be, if you have twins, twin daughters, wouldn't these be great names for them? Uh, these, were, these were the, the, uh, the midwives of Israel who were giving birth to, to all the children in Israel when, when Pharaoh said to kill them. And they said, nah. We ain't going to do that. And they were blessed. Moses was born. God's, God's redeemer for the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were preserved by these two women. You think that's not important? I think it is. Look at that. Look at how powerfully they were used. Miriam, Moses' sister. We see her included in the leadership of the children of Israel all throughout the Exodus period. She makes a couple of big mistakes but she also gets used mightily by God. From, from the time she was a small girl, she gets used mightily by God to save and preserve his people. Deborah, Judges 4 and 5. The, the judge, Deborah, she was a prophetess. It also mentions that she was a wife. And so she was walking in right relationship both with God and her house, household. And, and she saves the people of God, sings a beautiful song alongside a general who is key to the, the restoration and the salvation of the Israelites in that day. Deborah. Abigail. M most of you, maybe you've been doing your Bible reading this year and, and you remember, oh, I remember there was a story about some lady, yeah, Abigail. Abigail turned the heart of King David and kept him from committing a grievous sin. She, she kept him from destroying her husband who deserved it on one hand, but had David killed her husband, David would have been judged. You know what happens to her husband a little bit later? He dies. To honor Abigail, David marries her, makes her his third wife. Now you might go, third wife? It was to guarantee that she was protected and cared for for the rest of her life. They have a child together. You don't really hear much more about her other than she kept King David in a right place with God. Abigail. 
Bathsheba. Most of us know Bathsheba, and we think of, you know, cleaning on the rooftop, and uh, bad things come from that, but there's more to Bathsheba. Later in her life, God uses her, and she's instrumental in, in affirming her son Solomon as the next king of Israel, as God had proclaimed. And so Bathsheba, while we, we look at her story in, in her past and go, oh, she was terrible. She made some terrible choices. She, what, what, that's, ter- ah. Later on, God uses her to keep his kingdom and to fulfill his promises. And, and not in an indirect way, but she's instrumental in going to her husband David and seeing to it that he affirms Solomon's rule. The Proverbs 31 woman, most of us, we've heard of her. This is an ideal woman, but do you know what the Proverbs 31 woman does? Things like buying and selling land, starting businesses. She's well known in the gates of the city. What does that mean? She is popular with all of the powerful people, and they know her name because she is significant. There, there are other, other women. I mean, we can go into the New Testament. We look at Mary. It starts in Luke one twenty eight, and, and God calls her blessed and highly favored. God uses a teenage girl to change the world. And she is faithful for a lifetime. We, we can look at, at, at other women who are, are part of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 8 tells us they were actually women who were well off, probably widows, who supported the ministry of Jesus. And not just like, Jesus, I like you, but they paid for him and his disciples to travel, to eat, to be able to have the freedom to do daily ministry. We got Priscilla, along with her husband. Most of you know his name. It rhymes with Priscilla. It is Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. There should be a song. Is there a song? Anybody who's older or more Sunday schooled than me? Anyway, there should be a song. But Priscilla, she plays a key role in training up one of the most noted teachers in the New Testament era. And she's a close friend of the Apostle Paul. We've got all these other ladies in Romans chapter 16. They're named Phoebe, Mary, Hunia, Rufus's mother, who the Apostle Paul says is like a mother to me. Julia, Narius' sister. If you read Romans 16, you see all of these women included for commendation about how they are doing great ministry and affecting the kingdom of God. And some of them are mothers and wives and sisters. And so when we look at all of these women who do great things in the hands of God and are critical to the story of redemption unfolding, we, we have to understand that the, the design that God has for family does not make anyone unimportant or unusable or less than when it comes to doing the work of the ministry. But it, it, it does mean that we have certain roles and we have certain places in which we can function, but we should not, because of either the good or the bad on either side of living this out, reject what God has given to us. Another quote from C.S. Lewis, a little bit of Latin for those of you who like some of that kind of stuff. Abusus non tolet usum. Uh, you can just read that and, and then um, that's like how you open the secret door at your apartment or something too. But um, uh, do some Harry Potter. I don't know. Uh, but but the, the point of that Latin phrase is the abuse does not abolish the use. 
If we threw away from, from, from our lives everything good that God had designed that's been abused by people in our past, we would throw away a lot of stuff. Did you know that there are gluttons who overeat? <laughs> Shh. Does that mean we should get rid of food? No, it's, it's a beautiful gift from God, isn't it? Did you know that Hunter Biden smoked crack? That sounded political. I'm not being political. Hunter Biden smoked crack, right? Okay, does that mean we shouldn't breathe? You shouldn't breathe just because Hunter Biden or Bill Clinton inhaled or, oh, but, but right, I mean, how ludicrous is it, right, that because something is abused, does that mean we should not partake of it and that it's no longer valuable? We see intimacy abused in our culture on a regular basis, don't we? Does that mean as Christians we should never be intimate again? No, there's a beautiful design to it. And just because something like eating or, or breathing or intimacy has been abused, that doesn't mean that God's design is negated. In fact, as Christians, we should probably be working all the harder to reclaim the good design of God. C.S. Lewis said in that same essay, the family can be offered to God, can be converted and redeemed, and will then become the channel of particular blessings and grace. And I agree with him here. I think C.S. Lewis is absolutely right that like any other part of our life, our families can be offered up to, be, to God, can be converted to how they should be and redeemed so that we look forward to being home instead of dread it. So that our marriage is a thing of peace instead of conflagration. So that our children are, are individuals that we can find joy in instead of dreading. So that our employer-employee relationships can be solid and meaningful and, and giving toward one another instead of drudgery. That when we reclaim the household, it can become a blessing. But the way that we reclaim the household is not trying to do it according to our own desires and designs. But instead to look at something like this, the household code that God has given to us in his word and to live it out in our lives. As we wrap up this morning, see, I thought I was doing good and didn't bite off too much. I bit off too much again. Aren't you glad we, I didn't try and go through the whole code in one day after trying to explain why we should and then doing it? No. It's going to take a couple more weeks for this to unfold. Here is the truth, though, brothers and sisters. Your household will follow a code. There is no doubt about it. There is a law in your home that rules today. Whether spoken or unspoken, someone or something rules in your home. And some of you might look around at the people in the chairs beside you and go, oh, it's you. <laughs> or you might look in the mirror and go, it's me, isn't it? And I'm out of place. And I'm leading us away from God. And I'm taking us away from his design. Or it's one of the kids. Or it's mom who lives with us. Or dad who's still hanging out. And we've got to bring this thing into order. Brothers and sisters, your household will follow a code. And even if the, those of you who, who are single, your household has a code. 
Someone is dictating to you how you live your day. Is it your savior or is it your desires? Those of you with kids in the house, your home has a code, your home has a regula, it has a standard, who's in charge? Over these next few weeks as we get deeper into these, I want to encourage you to think about this. Your household will follow a code no matter what, whether by intention or default. Will it be the one designed for you or one given to you by culture, selfish desires, and sinful tendencies? Where's your household code going to come from? I want to encourage you, the best one you can find to implement is going to be the one that we are going to unfold over the coming three weeks here in Colossians chapter 3 and 4. But if you ignore this, you just, it's no big deal. That's an old thing. I don't care. You know, we're we're modern people. Listen, your your household's going to have a code. It's going to have a standard. And the question is, who will be ruling? And I got to tell you, it's not Jesus, most likely. Two things you can do in the coming days. Pray for the genuine salvation of your household members. And and let let me tell you why. This household code that we're going to read in Colossians, it is written specifically for a home where everyone believes on Christ as their Savior. It is not impossible to have a household of peace and blessing if everyone is not saved, but it is much easier if everyone is. And the reason I put genuine salvation is I'm not talking about the guy who pretends to be a Christian for the sake of getting married. And I'm not talking about the kid who's walked the aisle just to make mom and dad happy. And I'm not talking about the wife who says she's a Christian just so her husband will leave her alone. Talking about genuinely saved individuals who've turned their life over to Christ. And if we're honest, we know what that looks like and that there's a difference. And so to begin today, as you look at your home, if you're saying it's not what it should be, I want to follow God's way, begin to pray for the genuine salvation of those in your household. And then as we're reading more about this and unfolding this household code to resolve to fulfill your God-designed role in the household in which you live. Now, why your role? I don't want you worried about the other person. I want you to be obedient to Christ yourself first. Do you realize if in a home full of believers, every person is obedient to their standard, to their role, to what God has designed for them, then the whole household will function as God has designed it. If everybody starts pointing fingers at one another, submit. Love, obey. It becomes a place of trouble and gracelessness again. So resolve to fill your role that God has given you so that we might fulfill this one verse, whatever we do in word or deed, do it in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and and ask that as we we sing this last song that we not be distracted by the end of the service, but that instead we would allow the words that you've spoken to us about design and obedience and blessing to sink in deep, to mull it over, to decide how we will respond. Because your desire for us 
It's lives of abundance. It's households of peace and grace. And it's not going to come by accident. And it's not going to come by some other standard. But it will come only when we walk according to the standards that you've given to us. And so help us to hear the words, to apply them to ourselves, to show grace to the others in our household as we seek all of us to be living lives where all of us are doing in word or deed, all of it in your name, Lord Jesus, that you might be glorified and that we might find blessing in faithfulness to you. Continue to speak to us. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts. And help us to look more like you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.